Once again, good morning, and it is once again a great privilege to be here with you, knowing that it wasn't too long ago that this building stood completely empty on Sunday morning. Hopefully that serves as a uh, reminder that we should never take this for for granted. This morning, uh, I would like for us to ponder conduct that is worthy of the gospel from the book of Philippians. If you want to be uh, turning there to the book of Philippians, as was read in our hearing earlier, we'll get there in just a moment. You think about some of the foundational pillars of the Christian religion, worshiping God, studying his word, praying to him. One of those foundations of Christianity is to multiply. Whenever Jesus would, would tell his disciples in those various passages that we call the Great Commission, uh, he, what, what he was essentially saying to do was to go into all the world and to multiply. Go, therefore, into all the world and, uh, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He was saying to go into all the world, consider every creature from every nation, and multiply. Take my example, take my teachings, and be fishers of men. But what does it take to do that? What does it take to be a fisher of men? Does it just take having a knowledge of the message? Do we just have to memorize the gospel? Do we have to memorize the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus? Do we just have to memorize the steps of salvation so that other people may do them as well? Those things are important, yes, but it takes more than that. In order to be effective spreaders of the gospel, there needs to be some work done to our character. If you are in the book of Philippians, look at chapter 1 and verse 27 again. Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs and stand uh, in, fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you were to ask me what one verse most accurately summarizes the entire book of Philippians, it would be this one. It might be the case that this book was written simply to help settle a dispute between two sisters in Christ. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, and then that you see that Paul urges these two women, in particular Iodi and Syntyche, to reconcile and settle their differences by having the same mind. So it might be the case that that was the initial driving force behind his, his writing to the Philippian brethren. But in the book's entirety, what we find over and over again are ways that we can help what is a phrase found in chapter 1 and verse 12, the furtherance of the gospel. Perhaps your version says the progress or the advance of the gospel. In drawing from chapter 1 verse 27, we cannot effectively further the progress of the gospel if our conduct is not worthy of the gospel. Now that word conduct is in the original Greek is a word that references one's obligations to the community that they live in. So while these were people who were living in a place that was highly influenced by Greek culture and was under Roman occupation, they had ob obligations, yes, to live respectively, quietly, peaceably in their community, but they had obligations to a different country. You'll get chapter 3 and verse 20. That's where Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there are certain obligations that exist when being a member of the kingdom of heaven. And there is a certain way to live in order to effectively spread the, the gospel and work towards the furtherance of the gospel. 
This morning, I'd like to draw out four things from each chapter of the book of Philippians that we can identify as being certain obligations that we have to effectively spread the gospel. Four things that help our conduct to be worthy of the gospel. Four things, though uh, we could bring out more, that if we're not living this way, the gospel cannot be spread as effectively as we know it can be. The first this morning, the gospel is not as effective if we are not focused. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. If we are going to be effective spreaders of the gospel, we need to be focused on those things which are supremely important. There are two ways that I see Paul being focused uh, despite his circumstances in chapter 1. The first is from verses 12 through 18. Look beginning at verse 12 uh, through verse 17 first. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has been become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction in my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel." What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, and yes, will rejoice. Notice that that Paul counted his imprisonment to be a good thing because it worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. But there were some folks who were preaching Christ, but they were doing it somehow in a way to to spite uh, Paul. There were some who preached out of love, knowing that he was set for the defense of the gospel, but there was this this, this sect of, of people who were preaching out of, uh, that was motivated out of selfish ambition, a phrase that we'll find later in chapter 2. So what, what does he do about this? Does he condemn these individuals? No, look again at verse 18. He says, What then only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, in this I rejoice. Yes, will I will rejoice. He said that despite their highly questionable motives, he rejoiced in the fact that Christ was still being preached. So despite others uh, trying to add affliction to Paul while he's in prison, he was focused on the ultimate goal enough to look past his present circumstances. That's the first way that he was focused. The second is from verses 19 through 26. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of uh, the Spirit of Jesus Christ." According to my earnest expectation and the hope that in nothing I should be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and the joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. This being one of the great struggles in the life of the Apostle Paul. He, on a a physical level, did not have a, a great life. He suffered all sorts of uncomfortable situations, all sorts of perils, uh, forms of persecution. He did not live a, a glamorous life. So it shouldn't really be a surprise to us that at times he would have much rather 
preferred to be with the Lord. And talking about the change from his physical body to a spiritual or a glorious one in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that he would rather be absent from this physical body, which feels all sorts of, kind of pain, and he would have rather be with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. But do you see the conflict here? On one hand, he wants to be with the Lord. On the other hand, he, he wants to remain so that he can further the progress of the gospel. Selflessly, he said that to remain in the flesh was more needful for the brethren. So he happily uh, would remain in this life all for their progress and the joy of their faith. So how was he focused? Even in prison, while outside influences were adding affliction to him, he rejoiced because ultimately the gospel was still being preached. Even though he had a great desire to be with the Lord, he rejoiced that he still drew breath so that he could further the progress of the gospel. You see what was constantly on his mind? He cared not so much about his personal comfort, but rather that uh, Christ's life, his teachings, his death, his burial, and his resurrection were getting to more individuals. Can we say that that's always our focus? Or do we at times opt for a more selfish route? We have received such a, a wonderful gift. We have heard of, of God's plan for mankind. We had one who shed his own, his own blood so that we could stand justified. But sometimes it might be the case that we don't always do what's going to help others to, to, to know those, those same things, to receive those same gifts. We lose focus. I believe our ultimate goal in this life is to glorify the one who breathed into us the breath of life. And it is because we have that knowledge of God and his son, Jesus Christ, that we have an obligation to get others to glorify him along with us. Think about your relationships. You have friendships. You have uh, professional relationships. You have family members. I believe that in every one of those relationships with someone outside of the body of Christ, there should always come a definite point in that relationship where the gospel is brought up where uh, they, they, they know about their Savior, they learn that there is a better way to, to live. And if we have that mindset where we are focused on the goal at hand, like Paul did in Philippians 1, we will more effectively spread the word. Number two, the gospel is not as effective if we are not humble. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 30, the entirety of chapter 2. This tying into our theme for the month, we are an exalted people, but we are only that if we are first humble, which might not sound right, right to us. You know, how can you be humble if you're also exalted? God doesn't always work in the way that we might think, does he? It is whenever we, we, we try to exalt ourselves that we actually fall. Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But it is when we humble ourselves that we are actually exalted. As was preached from this same pulpit last week, humble yourselves on the side of the Lord and he will lift you up. James 4 and verse 10. The entirety of chapter 2 has one continuous theme, which is humility. In verses 1 through 4, Paul sets forth a principle. In verses 5 through 30, he gives four examples of humility. Look first at what should be a pretty familiar section, verses 1 through 4. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So he says that we each need to have this, this, this lowly mind, one that does nothing out of selfish ambition, like, like those people that were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition in chapter 1. Not anything done out of selfish ambition or conceit, not looking out for only our interests, but also for the interests of others. And like I said, he's going to give four different examples of this. We'll save the best one for last by skipping to verse 12 for now. In verses 12 through 18, he gives the example of himself, the example of Paul. Verses 19 through 24 is the example of Timothy. Verses 25 through 30, the example of Epaphroditus. He speaks of the fact that he himself is glad and and rejoicing with them despite being poured out as a drink offering, meaning that he is glad and rejoicing with them despite having his own execution present in his mind. And about Timothy, that, that most people seek their own and are concerned about themselves, but not Timothy. He had met no one as like-minded as him who will sincerely care for their state and not his own. And Epaphroditus, who was sick almost to death, but despite that, he still mustered the strength to minister to them. And these are the kind of men that we need to be holding in esteem. But where did, did they learn this? From where did they learn to have this, this lowly mind? Because, you know, we can, we can learn something just fine, but the ultimate driving force behind doing that thing is whenever we see an example of that. Whenever we see that put into application, and in this case, we have a perfect example of humility. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? Verses 1 through 4, that mind that is lowly, that mind that does nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, that mind who esteems others greater than themselves, this is the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where did these men learn to be so humble? All they had to do was take a look at Jesus. All they had to do was take a look at at God himself who was God, who remained God, who was still God, but humbled himself before his father, taking the form of a bondservant. Not just any bondservant, but, but, but one who would eventually find himself on a Roman cross. Who would have thought that this would be the case? I've heard and, and read people who, who speak and write about how Christianity is nothing more than uh, embellished stories that borrowed from, from early religions. Show me another religion where God humbled himself, came in, in the flesh washed the the feet of imperfect men, and died for all of humanity. Show me a religion outside of Christianity that, 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 that looks like that. That is not anything that could have derived from the limited, imperfect mind of mankind. This is something that, that could only have come from a loving God himself. Now, as we consider these things, while we consider having this lowly mind, these men who just displayed humility, the God who showed the ultimate example of humility, a phrase from the book of Romans comes to mind. When Paul would say in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Romans to the Jews, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. What excuse could, could, could we possibly 
have for, for, for exalting ourselves, for thinking that we are better than anyone else, for, for thinking that, that we deserve more than anyone else? Could it be perhaps that we, that we could use the grace of God as a reason to boast over other people? For, uh, that, that we can look down on them because we know that we're right and they're wrong? Well, I'll tell you, if you use the grace of God as a reason to boast or to lord over anyone else, it might be the case that you won't enjoy that grace for too much longer. Humility is a fantastic tool when it comes to evangelizing. We do realize that people don't want to be talked down to, right? We, we do realize that, that they don't want anyone acting as if our character is so pure and undefiled as opposed to their wretched state, correct? If, if we try to act better than those of the world, then we're going to have a very tough time reaching them and, and reaching their souls. We have to have that Luke 17 and verse 10 mindset that says, So likewise you, when you have done all these things that are, which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done only what was our duty to do. You cannot be focused on the furtherance of the gospel if you are not first humble. Number three this morning, the gospel is not as effective if we are not reflective. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Look with me beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it is for, it is, uh, for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation. For we are, uh, are of the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks of himself to have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet I indeed also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and have count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So look at what, what Paul is doing. He is reflecting on his past. He's saying, this is who I used to be. A good way to look at this chapter as a whole is you have Paul's past, verses 1 through 11. You have Paul's present, verses 12 through 16, where he speaks about not having yet attained the resurrection, but, but continue, continuing to press on to the goal. Then verses 17 through 21 is Paul's future. That's where he speaks about our, our citizenship being in heaven, where these lowly physical bodies will be transformed into glorious bodies, the same one that Christ has. But look at what he said himself in verses 1 through 11. He was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had his eye fixed on the law. He was a Pharisee, which don't have a fantastic reputation in the New Testament. He zealously persecuted the church because he thought that that's what God wanted him to do. But he concluded that all of these things were now rubbish. Why? Because at that time he had now gained Christ. Because he had learned of, of the power of God and, and the power of, of, of Christ's resurrection and, and the hope that he had of being res resurrected himself in the future. 
So what, it, what he is doing here is, again, reflecting on who he used to be. Before what? Before the gospel made its way into his life. Before he, he stopped being conformed to this world, but was rather transformed by the renewing of his mind, Romans 12 and verse 2. In order to be effective uh, spreaders of the gospel, you have to have an understanding of uh, the, the power of the gospel and an appreciation for it. You have to realize and have an appreciation for how it worked in your life and, and, you, and be able to convey that transforming power to other people. Not that we have to have someone else up here each week giving a testimony, testimonial of, of their lives, but we need to be able to show how powerful the gospel is and how that power can work in anybody's life. What might come to mind here is Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who no works, and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of one mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. God, through the gospel, has brought us from death to life. The power of the gospel is that we were lost in our sins, we were separated from our God, but God, because of his great mercy and his great grace, made us alive together with Christ. The furtherance of the gospel will increase when Christians are reflective of their lives in the working of God through the gospel. Number four, and finally this morning, the gospel is not as effective if we are not joyful. Chapter four and verse four. This being one of the most well-known, more popularly quoted verses in the Bible, ironically, it's not even the most popular verse in, in this chapter if you look down at verse 13 but here Paul says rejoice in the Lord and for emphasis sake he says again I'll say it rejoice we see joy through all the book of Philippians chapter 1 verse 25 Paul remained with the brethren for the progress of their faith and the joy of their faith chapter 2 and verse 2 he wanted them to fulfill his joy by being like-minded Chapter 3 and verse 1, we read the same phrase that he would utter in chapter 4 and verse 4, where he said, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm sure you've heard more than a few times about the difference between um, happiness and, and, and joy. That being happy often depends on your circumstances and that it can fluctuate, whereas joy is a constant state of happiness because of your contentment that even in the tough times you still have joy in your heart this is seen in verses 10 to 13 where he says but i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again though you surely did care but lacked opportunity not that i speak in regard of to need for i've learned in whatever state i am to be content i know how to be abased i know how to bound everywhere in all things and i learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me. Paul, even through the, or even in the most difficult of times, he, he, he wasn't thinking, you know, boy, I'm just so ecstatic right now. But, but in those times, he still had that rock-solid joy uh, because of the, the, the hope that was within him, which led to his contentment. This is further emphasized in James chapter 1 and verse 2, where, where James would say, count it all joy, when you fall into not comfortable situations, 
but various trials. It's rejoice in the Lord always, not just whenever I feel like it or whenever it's comfortable for me. But do you know what's interesting, at least to me, about Paul saying here to rejoice? This term rejoice is an imperative command, meaning that Paul is authoritatively telling them that they need to rejoice. But should it really take an apostle's command for one to rejoice? No, because joy is a natural process. We don't need to be told to be joyful. I don't need to tell you to be joyful. If you have joy, you have joy. What I am telling you is that there is no reason that a Christian should not be joyful. Because of the God that they have come to know, because of the work of his son redeeming us from the clutches of sins, because of the hope that they have that that one day we will spend an eternity rejoicing in the presence of God. And I firmly believe that joy is something that can be identified. That the world can can look at you and they can see something different in you. That you don't get too rattled by unfortunate situations. That that nobody can, can shake you to the point of losing your faith because of the unconditional happiness which exists in your life. And it is because joy can be identified that makes this such an important aspect of furthering the progress of the gospel. If the world looks at us and and they see no signs of what Peter would call God's own, being God's own special people in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, why should they be interested? Why should they be interested in being a part of a body whose its own members have little to no enthusiasm about? Joy is reflected in all aspects of our lives. It's reflected in the way that we present ourselves, the way that we speak about the Lord and what he has done for us. And it's reflected in in our worship. Do they see, does the world see a people who have only come here out of obligation? Or do they see those people who are happily giving praise to the one who has formed us and the one who has, has redeemed us? If the world sees our our worship and and particularly our our, our singing as nothing more than a glorified funeral dirge, then I'm not sure I'm going to be able to blame anyone for not not wanting to be a part of that. David would say in Psalm 16 verse 11, in God's uh, presence is fullness of joy. Is that reflected in in our meeting here? Is that reflected in our worship whenever we come together in his presence? Joy is reflected in all aspects of our lives. So, If we go out preaching a message of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, but our lives are not exuberating those things, and if if we don't have a constant joyful disposition, then I'm not sure I can blame others for not wanting to live that lifestyle. Regardless if, if this is fair or not, but for many, obeying the gospel or not is going to depend on how the messenger lives their life. As Solomon would say in Proverbs 17, 22, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. The furtherance of the gospel relies heavily on whether or not its messengers are joyful or not. So from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we have identified certain things that if we are not, the gospel cannot be spread as effectively as it can. If we are not focused on the ultimate goal of our circumstances in our relationships... If we are not humble like like Christ was humble, if we are not reflective on the power of the gospel and God's bringing us from death to life, and if we are not joyful in all aspects of our lives, then the gospel cannot be spread as effectively as it can. 
Philippians is a highly practical book, and we could spend over a year speaking about all the things that it can help us and all the ways that it can help us further the progress of the gospel. But there is another way that the gospel is spread, and that is through the mode of preaching. The way that that masses of individuals came to know Christ in the first century was through the apostles' preaching, as demonstrated in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached Jesus. He preached his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the salvation that comes through him. From around the 3,000 souls that were added to the church that day, the multitudes of Christians began to well, multiply, as we spoke of earlier. And while we are in a different situation now than the church was in the first century, I have no doubt that there are some gathered here this morning whose lives are in need of some change. Perhaps your life cannot be described as focused, humble, reflective, or joyful. Know that the Lord desires for you to be those things. He wants you to to be able to leave this place this morning with joy in in your heart as you share his message with others. He also wants all of us to have that that peace which surpasses all understanding, as Paul said in chapter 4 and verse 7 of this book. And that peace is only attainable if we transform our lives according to God's standard. If we believe in him, if we repent of our sins, if we confess the name of his son as being Lord and king of our lives and are baptized in his name, the removal of our sins, go on to to live a joyful life that strives to, to please him in every way. Is that you this morning? Have you transformed your life according to the will of God? If not, he desires for all to be saved and for all to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you have any need this morning, please come while we stand and while we sing.